I'll be reading from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 9 through 12. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Thank you, Heidi. So if you're uh, new with us, uh, you've joined us for a series in the book of Thessalonians uh, that the Apostle Paul wrote to um, a Macedonian, uh, northern Greek uh, congregation. And uh, we're in the practical session. Uh, Last week we looked at an issue that the church had uh, involving immorality. And this week we are looking at an issue in the church with work. I got to give you a couple of hypothetical situations, all right? So let's say you go out with uh, some friends there. They've got adult children, all right? You're going out to eat with them. And uh, they confide with you that uh, their youngest son just recently graduated from college and uh, was unable to land a job in his field. And so the plan is for him to come back and live with them, pay off some student debt, uh, ensue you know, the job hunt, Get a, get a foothold into his field, uh, help with expenses, etc. So that was the plan. The way that it actually worked out, though, is that the job hunt sputters to a halt. Uh, all leads have been chased, and uh, he, he's really having a hard time. He kind of makes the comment like, the game's rigged. Like, y- you got to know somebody. And as a result, he gets discouraged And after a while, he gets a job at a warehouse for a couple of weeks and then uh, really, really dislikes it and quits. And so now he's somewhat depressed, does a lot of sleeping. Uh, The job hunt is almost non-existent, not able to help with expenses, and just seems to have have ground to a halt. And your friends say, how can we love our son? What, What should we do in this situation? Second situation. You have a family that is, you could say they're living on the ragged edge, and they're needing a lot of support from the church, which is wonderful. It's what the church is for. Um, however, it's just continually happening, and it just seems like they're, they're one, you know, one capital expenditure away from utter disaster. And this continues to go on, and the wife confides with some friends that, Behind this is uh, their families not being able to meet their needs because the husband has a very, very expensive hobby that he just refuses not to pursue. And uh, his friends know that it's because he hates his job and he's miserable and he just can't wait to get to the weekend. Uh, and yet he, he won't cut back on this spending and, uh, and he will not go out and seek more income. And so this family's really suffering. All right. So does the Bible have any direction on this. Well, last week we saw that Paul has got this way when approaching a sensitive topic, which this is a sensitive topic, by kind of getting a a general start and then getting a run at it. And he does the same thing here today. 
And, uh, but he kicks off this passage with now concerning brotherly love. Now you think like, well, after that passage on, you know, immorality, it'd be nice. We get to talk you know, about love. You know, that's a good topic. Um, however, if you had a boss that invited you into his office and, and sat you down and after a little bit of small talk uh, says, now concerning your job performance, what's your stomach do? Yeah, you know what's going to happen is corrective. And uh, this is another corrective passage. And Paul's been throwing some hints at this. Back in chapter 3, he had prayed this prayer that God would cause love to abound more and more. Which you could say, that's just a really good prayer, right? We could pray that for everybody. But the thing is, he's hinting that love is not abounding in some way. And now today he says, now concerning your love. So it gives you an idea that he's moving somewhere. And then in the passage, he kind of does this, this rather light touch. He actually doesn't tell us exactly what he's concerned about until the very, very last phrase. But if you keep on reading, and we read to the end of the letter in, in chapter 5, which I believe uh, Brandon's going to handle in a few weeks, he looks back at this passage and kind of recaps it, and this is what he says, admonish the idol. Now, idol is a fascinating word. It's a, it's a military word. And it's about a soldier that won't stay in line, right? In other words, a disorderly person. So you've got this idle person that is disruptive, all right? Some commentators call it the disruptive idol. Now, he's going to return to this issue. So Paul writes another letter, 2 Thessalonians. It's written soon after this first one. And in this passage, he just kind of, he, he gives it the light touch, In 2 Thessalonians, he has to swing back around and deal with it again. And this time, I mean, the gloves are off. And here is what he says. Just listen. Now we commend you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. For if we hear from among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies, now such persons we command and encourage you in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So here we have the disruptive idol. Now that's a very helpful term because it distinguishes, and this is an important distinction, between the willingly idle, they're choosing not to, Versus the unwilling idol. In other words, someone who would work if they possibly could. And remember that some of these, these Thessalonian believers were being cast out of their guilds. And so they were poor, we find out. And, and work was hard to come by. The disruptive idol is the willingly idol. And we'll talk about why that is in just a bit. Now, I want us to kind of back into this. So instead of like getting a run toward it, we're going to back into it, and we're going to start in verse 12, and we're just going to ask Paul this. Paul, what exactly is your concern here? Verse 12. He's doing this. His purpose for writing is two things, that you could walk properly before outsiders, and two, be dependent on no one. So number one, he is concerned with the church's reputation, Now, consistently, Paul has concern for those who are outside the church. We'll see this in a few verses that I'll put on the screen here. So he says, I want your love to abound, first of all, for one another, and then for who? For all, as we do for you. 
So Paul's not just focused on the Thessalonian church. If he were here, he wouldn't just be focused on 316 Red Mill Road and the people who come and worship here. He is worried about all people, outsiders, people outside the ecclesia. He also notes that leaders, when you're choosing leaders, have to have a good reputation. They need to be well thought of by outsiders so they won't fall into a disgrace. So the leaders of the church need to have a good reputation in the community. So as we enter budget season, our budget should reflect that we have love for outsiders and not just in 316 Red Mill Road. Our leaders shouldn't be, uh, have a bad, you know, bad reputation in the community. They should be good members of their homeowners association. They should be good neighbors. They should be good uh, citizens in every way. So why is Paul concerned about this? Well, he knows for these believers, they're kind of new, right? It's a, it's a fledgling Christian community. And whatever the new teaching is, it's going to attract scrutiny. So the people from outside are going to be looking in, and they're going to say, is this, is this group going to unravel the threads of our society? And as Christ followers, sometimes we're going to have to oppose the culture. We're going to have to run against it. But there are other times where our Christian ethic is actually going to be the thing that's holding society together. I would say work ethic is one of those areas. So he's concerned with the church's reputation. Is there anything else? Yes, the main point. He is concerned that able-bodied church members who are able to work but are not, are not dependent on anyone. So when they are, he says, they are disruptive idol and they distract from the care of those that we need to care for the most. So there are people that the church needs to care for, needs to come alongside. That would include people who are very poor, for mothers who are taking care of their children, for the aged parents who are no longer of working age, perhaps for the disabled. These are the groups that the church is supposed to move in and care for. And Paul is saying, when you've got people who can work but choose not to, you are being disruptive idle. We are to be caring for this group of people rightfully, but we are not because we're focused on you. And so that is Paul's concern. So we've looked at verse 12, and we say, okay, all right, that's the problem. That's the concern, the disruptive idol who are distracting the church from its true mission. Now, does he tell us exactly what the nature of this problem actually is? And he does that in verse 11. So he instructs the ones that are disrupting the church with their idleness the following way. You should aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. Paul would say that this disruptive idleness, this willful idleness, is a failure to aspire to three honorable things. In other words, it's an attitude problem. Let's look at these three things that we are to aspire to, things that should adjust our attitude about work. We should aspire first to live quietly. Now, living quietly, I mean, it could be taken as living silently or restfully. And some of you who've got young children, you're like, oh, that sounds like bliss. Live quiet, live restful. Yeah, you know, when you tell a child to be quiet, why do you do that? Well, because they're rambunctious play, which is really a beautiful thing. But it is rambunctious play is disturbing something. That's why we say be quiet. 
And so you're telling them to stop disrupting. So when he says live a quiet life, he's saying stop disrupting. That's the end. And so these disruptive idols are living loudly in a bad way. It was disrupting the church. It was disrupting the society. And so uh, the result was they were spending the resources on the wrong people. And Paul says, you need to aspire, strive, fight, work hard for, consider honorable, what? Living a quiet life. So you've got this picture of fighting hard to live quietly. Very interesting. Well, what does that look like? Well, he's going to actually, the next two phrases will tell us what it looks like to live quietly. He says you need to aspire to mind your own business. Well, that sounds kind of nasty in English, right? When you say mind your own business, it's not normally a nice thing. But it would have struck them a little bit differently. It would have struck them as saying, tend to your own affairs, or maybe be busy about your own work. In the second letter, Paul says, they're busybodies. Now, the truth is that if you're minding your own business, tending your own affairs, working your own job, you don't meddle with other people's business. When you tend to your own affairs, you don't have to call someone to, to bail you out. You know, it, it's true that when you don't tend to your own affairs, it tends to like be like a weed in your garden that grows up. And, and I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you do something that's fairly simple, like let's just say don't pay your cell phone bill, right? And, um, and so, first month, not a big deal. Next month, they add another $100 plus a late fee. And so now you have $235. And then you pay part of it, but not all of it. And then the third month, they shut off your cell phone. And then you miss the call to the job offer. And then, you know, and, and so you see how these things just are all related and spiral because you didn't tend to your own affairs. So, when everyone tends to their own affairs, everyone else can get busy with the important work of loving each other better. You know, it's possible for us to um, not to, to be employed and yet still not tend to our own affairs and mind our own business. I think of the phenomena of, of quiet quitting. Have you, have you ever heard of that? It's kind of a passive-aggressive way to... Doing the bare minimum to retain your employment. Uh, you know, another spin of it is something that managers would know. It's called vicious compliance. Vicious compliance is when you do exactly what the manual says, even if you know it's going to hurt your company. You know, instead of the, the letter, you, know, you full, do the letter of the law versus the spirit of it, and you do it on purpose. And you say like, oh, that's the way you want to do it? You're clueless management. I'll show you. That's vicious compliance. So, you know, it's actually, both of these are ways that we don't mind our own business, right? Instead, we, we swerve in and we begin to... to uh, hurt somebody else's business. Now, now, don't hear me saying that we should stay in an unjust situation. I mean, we're not slaves. We, we have contractual obligations, right? So we can renegotiate, we can go for a promotion, or we have the dignity of, of leaving. And, and minding your own business may mean you have the courage to move on or confront whatever situation it is. But we're to live a quiet life and mind our business. Now, Paul says also that it, it means working with your hands. So he says, aspire to live quietly, to mind your own business, tend your own affairs, work your own job, and then to work with your hands. Now, I do believe that if there were information work back then that Paul would say he would include that as well. 
Uh, it doesn't matter whether we're talking blue collar, white collar, you know, whether we're working with objects or whether we're working with information, whether we're typing on a keyboard, whether we're turning a wrench. The idea here is that we work hard. Now, back then, apparently for the Greek elite, manual labor was considered good as it went, but it was for slaves and low-class people. That was the attitude. You know, I, I kind of wonder about these guys who decided willfully not to work. In other words, I can, I'm not going to. I used to think that it had something to do with the return of Christ, that they heard Paul to say, it's happening in a week, so we're not going to do it. We're just going to sit on a mountaintop and wait. But I read through, and it actually doesn't say that that's what was driving it. And so again, I'm just kind of using sanctified imagination here. I, I kind of wonder if they thought like, well, Jesus had Peter, James, and John, and they left their nets, and they followed Jesus. So we're going to be the really, really engaged followers of Paul. We're going to quit our jobs, and, and just like Jesus' followers had the leading women that supported them, we're going to let the church do that for us. They didn't ask permission, they just, they just did it. Well, Paul's saying, uh, I'm not going to have any of that. Different context, guys. His instruction was to embrace hard work. And we know that Paul was willing to do that himself. He was a tent maker. I think it's interesting that um, the Jewish view of work was different than the Greek elite view of work. Uh, because every person, even a person like Paul, who seems to be like really educated and high-born, every person had a trade, and Paul was willing to make tents. That was normal. You know, I, I do think that in our society that we need like an adjustment on this, on the dignity of work. I think that we need to have an adjustment even on the dignity of trades. I appreciate the, the, the work of a guy named Mike Rowe. Some of you have seen the show Dirty Jobs. And, and he's just a champion for working hard. And he, he specifies it's for blue collar or white collar. Um, but he's a special proponent for the trades. And it kind of goes back to his high school where there was this, this poster that said, work smart, not hard. And uh, another guy told my son once, you know, tools are for fools, son, stay in school. You know, so, but, but Micro saw that and it infuriated him so much that today he's selling posters that look like, like this. And so the point here is not that education is, is wrong or bad, but it's that there's dignity in all work. I had a, a teacher who was just chatting with me, and he said that he did an a, uh, impromptu survey with a group of computer science majors. And he said, how many of you guys are, are doing this because you love coding? And uh, most of them put their hands up. And he said, now, if, if you don't, why are you doing it? And they said, well, that's where the money is. And my, my teacher was just kind of pondering this with me. He was just musing, and he said, I, I wonder how many top-notch mechanics our country is missing because of that mentality. And it was just like something that, that marked in my mind that we need to think about all work as very, very dignified. And, and you know, so Paul would have approved of Mike Rowe's crusade. He would say that, that work is dignified and loving is, is very loving to work hard so that you can provide for your family, even if you're doing a job that you don't care for. So we've seen in verse 12 that his concern is for the reputation of the church and that these willingly idle people are not taking the resources of the church. 
And now we've seen the attitude behind the idleness. It's an attitude problem. They're not aspiring to work hard, not working with their hands. They've got a bad view of work. And, and, you know, you could stop there and say, all right, fair enough. He fixed the problem. But in verse 9 and 10, he takes it one step further and he kind of dives in there and gets to the root of the problem. And the root cure is actually a little surprising to me. Look at the uh, verses. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. Interesting. When Paul sets out to deal with idleness, he says it's a love problem. Well, that's, that's you know, if you ask me, so what's wrong with this picture? What is the wrong with, with the people who've taken this mentality? The first thing that I would say would probably not be it's a love issue. But Paul does. He appeals to the disruptive idle people with love appeals. What were those love appeals? Well, the first one was think of your family. The word here, brotherly love, is Philadelphia. Absolutely, the city of brotherly love. So this is the actual kind of love that real blood-related siblings have. And we've got this reminder where we've had it several times where we find out that our union with Christ is thicker even than blood. So even though the reputation of the church was a concern, what Paul was really worried about was these relationships. He said, you're hurting your family. You know, and that's a powerful appeal. Uh, If you have a mother with a tear-stained face looking at her son and say, you're breaking our hearts. Well, even if you've got somebody who's really, really callous, that's going to pierce that, that shell you're, you're going to be think twice about whatever you're doing. And so he says, guys, all right, I want you to think of your family. He also reminds them that they're being taught to love. And so it's important that they do so. And who's their teacher? God. God. You've been taught by God to love one another. So Paul's commending the entire church for the fact that, honestly, I don't have to write you guys about love because you are already doing it. You are taught by God or God taught. It's one word, and Paul made it up. Brand new word, God taught. And, uh, and so he cobbles it together for this purpose. Now, what's it mean to be taught by God or God taught? Well, there's no doubt that Paul and his team had taught them about love. It's not as if Paul never spoke about love or anything. Um, but I think what he's saying is that you, you listened and accepted our teaching under you know, the inspiration of God. You listened to us. You were taught by God. You know, but I also don't want to, uh, to downplay another aspect of this. I think the reason that Paul was so confident that they were going to get this is because he's referring to Jeremiah 31, which is one of the key verses in Scripture, which reads this, Each one from the least to the greatest will know the Lord, because God himself is going to write the law on their heart. And so, the new covenant is when God takes the, the law, where the law used to be the, the content of the covenant. In other words, this is the law of God. And he took that, and he became an object that's written on every believer's heart. So Paul's team didn't have to teach them everything there was about love, because the Holy Spirit was doing that. God himself was undertaking to teach them. And what is his curriculum? What's God's curriculum? To love one another. So at this point in the passage, the, the targets of Paul's admonition, they don't know it's talking to them. He does, they don't know that he's talking to them yet, but he's preparing them to get back into line. 
to call them away from being disorderly by reminding them of the ways that they need to love well. He says, God himself will teach you this. Another appeal is this, that they participate in the regional impact of this church. You know, if you've ever heard of, uh, you know, FOMO, the fear of missing out, it's, it's a little bit of that. You know, they, the fact that this church has caught this observation about love is very, very evident. He says, just look around, for that indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. So what's happening here, this church's love is overflowing Thessalonica and going into all of northern Greece. And he says, everybody's heard about your love. Now, now how did that work? Well, for one thing, we know Thessalonica was a capital city. And so all of these Christians, which I think is a pretty small community, would, would come through on this trade route, and they always knew that this church in Thessalonica would be there to show them love and have hospitality. Also, in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 8, it says that your faith has gone out everywhere. In other words, word was getting around. In fact, they were going out and preaching at these other places, and so their love was being broadcast. It's even possible that their missions giving was a way that they loved. So when Paul comes, uh, Silas and Timothy come to Paul from Macedonia, we find out in Acts 18, they bring gifts from these poor believers in Thessalonica. And so they're giving to the spread of the gospel. So uh, I think at this time, if you were on the take, if you were one of the disruptive idol who were willingly not choosing to work, and Paul was saying like, hey guys, look at all the wonderful things that are happening and you're not participating, then they would start to feel a little bit uncomfortable. Paul is inviting them to get in the game. And then a final appeal. He says, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Now, you could look at this as just a general appeal to the church just to to love more, right? You can't ever have too much love. However, I think Paul's starting to dial it in. In fact, I think this is the hinge on which he begins to address these particular brothers. How do we know that? Notice the first word, but, all right? So he's, he's saying, I'm shifting here. I'm commending everybody, but I'm going to start addressing this. And then he says brothers again. And so he's starting to dial in on a few people. And that appeal to do it more and more. Well, of course, you can't ever love too much, But if you're not doing anything, then you of all people need to do it more and more. And so this indicates there's room for improvement. So what we have here is a gentle invitation from Paul to fill in what is lacking by joining what God's people are doing. So as we figure out as a church how to approach work-related issues in our congregation, I really think that Paul's gentle approach here prompts us to be gentle and discerning because it's a, it's a sensitive issue. Uh, the Great Depression showed us the effect that not being able to provide had on breadwinners. It was, it was devastating. There was shame and depression and suicide and uh, feelings of unworthiness and loss of dignity. And so our, our dignity is so tied to our work And so we need to approach cautiously. I think Paul had a really great model. Just as I'm applying this here for us, Paul had a really great model of a cautious approach. You notice how way back there he was praying for them. So praying for somebody who is in this this situation would be one thing. 
And then when he goes in, he affirms the relationship, says, hey, hey, brothers, I need you to listen to me. And then he calls them to like, come, you know, be a part of what God is doing. And then he kind of gives it this light touch. And then later on, if that was not heard, then he circles around and he, he approaches it again. You know, a lot of times when we're looking at an issue like this, we really don't know what's happening, right? We may suspect, but we need to go in and we need to ask questions. We need to be sensitive. You know, perhaps it's not just somebody willingly not working. It may be that there is weakness and they need support or may need, they need resources. So just don't, don't assume. You know, if we look at the, the two families or at the beginning you know, where we talked about the family that was on the ragged edge. You know, a gentle approach would be if somebody's indicating there's an issue like, like the wife who confided on that, take that very, very seriously. Um, and then next would be approaching the brother with questions and seeing what the situation truly is while reaffirming that relationship. And then make gentle appeals. You think about the other situation where you have a discouraged person who's just stopped their job hunt. It may mean we need to ask those questions and come alongside and encourage, but we may appeal to them along these lines. Think about the effect on your family. Think about the effect on your church. Examine your attitude. Do you have a, an attitude where you're, you're living loud, where you're insisting that you don't need to do anything? Um, possibly that your attitude toward work is broken, and you need to re- be reminded that it's dignified and it's loving even if it's outside your field. Then finally, your church family needs you. (laughs) We need you to come and be a part of what God is doing here. This is all a part of our appeal. Second, as another application, kind of a secondary one, I I think we can use this passage to affirm hard work wherever we see it, whether we're in our field or not, tending to our affairs, working our own jobs, working with our hands is godly, and it's dignified even if it's not your dream job. You know, you've heard the phrase, do what you love, and you'll never work a day in your life. And I, and I think that may be lovely, and that may be ideal. But we also have respect for those, like some of our grandparents, who labored in mills, so that our parents may have been able to have a gentler life and do what they dreamed. They minded their own affairs. They worked with their hands. And we may be called to do the same. Remember that it is loving for us to do that. And we do this so that we can not only love our families, but we can contribute to what God is doing here, uh, to the hospitality and sharing the gospel and giving to missions. And then kind of a final secondary application. As a church, we need to support. So we need to discern if there's somebody who is actually being willingly idle. But if somebody is unwillingly idle, we need to support them in every way we can because of the life circumstances. We can love them. You know, some of the things that we mentioned, the meal trains, right? DoorDash, financial gifts, picking up kids so they can finish a shift, um, maybe providing leads if we know for, that for employment, helping them network. These are all ways that we as a church can come alongside and support those who are in circumstances that prevent them from working. And I'd like to give two special appeals for us. First of all, our church has um, a benevolence fund. And this is something that if you've been here for a while, you know that we would replenish it on fifth Sundays. 
And for a while, this has not been replenished. It's been very, very healthy. But this year, our deacons, who manage it, have been able to give aid to a number of our church members. And it's been a delight to do so. And so now we're in the happy position of needing to replenish our benevolence fund. So next week, fifth Sunday, even though it's a big week for the the vote and everything, we are also taking offerings for the benevolence fund. All right. Now what that's going to look like is... um, any giving that goes into the boxes in the back made out to Old Town Baptist Church will go toward this benevolence fund. Second of all, you will see in the drop-down menu of the giving app that you'll see benevolence, so anything will go for that. And, uh, and so that's how we're going to replenish that fund so that we can begin helping our church in this area. So I encourage you to give generously to that. And second, helping us network. If you are a person who has access to something where you have a say in who gets hired, or you even know of a really great job opportunity, could you tell me, or could you call our office, because we would like to start tracking these things so we can kind of become a clearinghouse if we know somebody who has needs. So two ways we as a family can begin to support those who, who wish to find work. So here we are. Our brotherly love in this area of work is, is yet another way that we as a church can walk faithfully, walk worthily, and please God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the instructions that you give us. Thank you for Paul's kind heart and how he approaches this courageously, but also cautiously. Father, as we as a church continually try to love one another better. I pray that we would do better at supporting people who are in circumstances that prevent them from working. Father, I pray for the situations that exist right now, that you would bring those to a resolution, that they would have all the work that they need so they can provide. Father, I pray for the work of your spirit in our hearts, that if our attitude toward work has been skewed, Lord, I pray that that would be adjusted today. And Lord, as situations come up that we need to approach them courageously, I ask that you would give us the courage to do that. And so, Lord, I ask that you would bless our church. I pray that you would bless our church in our communities. And so, Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.